We're in Colossians chapter 4 and verses 2 to 4 this morning as we continue in our exposition of this letter of Paul to the church at Colossae. Now I'll just read our passage for the morning, this morning. <clears throat> Colossians 4, verses 2 to 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. and I pray, we pray, that we may hear, we may understand. Pray that as I speak your word, that you may help me to make it clear as how I ought to speak. That my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision and accuracy and impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, we are getting towards the end of this letter. And uh, you may see in, in your Bible there's, there's uh, uh, chapter headings and paragraph headings in, in many Bibles. Those headings aren't inspired, but um, many times they, they give a, a correct summary of what's happening. And, and right here in, in my Bible, in the English Standard Version, it says, Further Instructions. And then uh, uh, a few verses down it says, Final Greetings. And so we, we see the end as Paul is, is wrapping up and he's, um, in a sense, capping off his letter. He's transitioning and he had just finished up all, pretty much most of his instructions on biblical sanctification and how um, Christians, how the believers in Colossae are to be holy, how they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, um, how they are to honor Christ who saved them and whom they um, live in. And he ends this letter with um, some final instructions, some final exhortations. And, and it's interesting that in this, um, these few verses, he um, turns to prayer. Because most of his letters, he begins with prayer. And prayer is, is very important. It's vital in our lives as Christians. And, and sadly... Um, too often the church and, and we ourselves diminish prayer. We diminish the power of prayer. We diminish the um, importance of prayer. Even if we don't say that, even if we don't verbalize it, we diminish the importance by our prayerlessness, by our own actions. We, we can often say that prayer is important, prayer is vital, prayer is important to me. But then if we were to look at our schedules, if we were to look at our prayer life it may say something completely different. And the truth of the matter is prayer is hard sometimes. We don't, we don't often think of it that way. Um, because in a sense, yes, yeah, so you, you can always talk to God. And he knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows every word uh, before it's on your tongue. As the scriptures say, um, he knows it all. And he calls us to come to him and pray to him. And bring our requests before him. And, and uh, 
We would want to do that, and we do do that, but we don't do that as often as we should. And I think uh, there's several reasons for that. Uh, first off, we don't really see God as who he is, who he really is. And no matter where you're at in your Christian life and your maturity and your level of sanctification, that is true. Um, we'll spend all eternity learning about who God really is. And so we always are continuing to grow in our knowledge of God, but um, part of our prayerlessness is our low view of God. Also, our high view of self, that we um, feel like we can do a lot of things in our own power. We feel that um, we can figure things out on our own, solve our own problems. And uh, some of that is true. But at the same time, the only reason we can solve any of our own problems is because God gives us the abilities and the wisdom and the breath to do it. All things come from the hand of God. And so it's, it's foolish not to pray. Um, it's in a sense, I, I would dare say, stupid. Given who God is and who we are, we're needy. And, you know, as Paul begins most of his letters with prayer, and most of the um, New Testament writers begin their letters with prayer, and they end their letters with prayer, Paul gives instructions here on prayer for the believers in Colossae. And in this passage, he gives two instructions primarily, or rather two exhortations or, or pleadings to the Colossians concerning their practice of prayer. We see these two, two verbs, uh, um, in a sense, continue or devote in some translations and then pray also for us. He, he calls the Colossians to, first and foremost, pray fervently and faithfully. Pray fervently and faithfully. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. That's his, his first instruction to the Colossians, to pray fervently and faithfully. And as I said, you know, some, some of your translations may say devote yourselves to prayer. Some may say continue steadfastly in prayer, um, pray in earnest. But it's all the same point, to pray fervently and faithfully. But how are we to pray fervently and faithfully? We can read this um, first verse 2, and, and on its face we, we see that, and we can agree with that, and we can almost um, understand a bit about what he's getting at, but when we get into the exact details in our prayer lives, in those times, how are we exactly to pray fervently and faithfully? And we're first to, by, by praying continuously, persistently, which is almost um, rewording that differently, fervently and faithfully, to um, pray continuously and persistently. And it's interesting as, you know, um, my translation, the English Standard Version, begins that verse with continue. And some say devote, uh, many say, many English translations say continue. And it presumes that you are already praying. It presumes that you're already um, living a life of prayer. But as he said in, in, in other 
um, places in the New Testament to excel still more, to strive, to push on, to um, grow in your prayer life. I'd like you to turn with me to, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And this is, you know, because we, we often hear this command to um, pray without ceasing, to continue in prayer. Um, to live a continuous life of prayer. You, we, we see those, those commands, those instructions as from the Apostle Paul because they're, they're most clearly from the Apostle Paul. But um, Jesus gives the same commands to his disciples in Luke chapter 18 um, in this parable. And it says that he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's interesting that he uses those precise words that they ought always to pray. We, we can affirm that, that we ought always to pray, but um, then he says, and not lose heart. And that, that's probably why we don't always pray, <laughs> because we tend to lose heart, or we get weary, or we get tired, or we don't see the answer right away. We don't see God move right away. It's almost as if we assume um, Prayer, or, or we, we, we think of prayer as if we're talking to another human being. Like we expect them to answer right away, to respond right away once we say something. But our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And it, it, he doesn't have to answer us right away. But we are to pray to him always and not lose heart. And Jesus goes on and he, say, he gives this parable, this illustration, which is great. He says, he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither, neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give judge justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And he uses this example of an unrighteous judge, a corrupt judge. And um, sometimes we don't think too clearly about that or too deeply about that. We just read, okay, unrighteous judge. We need to think in terms of, you know, maybe some of the, the um, crime shows or um, murder um, novels that we read where there is a very corrupt judge, a judge that takes bribes, a judge that... Um, is in, in a sense indebted to um, criminal syndicates or mafia, uh, a judge that just doesn't care. He believes he's above the law. He'll do whatever he wants. He's the judge. This is the type of judge here. And then the lowly widow who has no power at all, no clout, no credibility in the judge's eyes, but she bothers him. She nags him. So much so that he just throws his hands up in there and he's like, fine, have it your way. And this is 
This is the parable Jesus uses. And it's interesting, many of his parables, he uses these extremes to get our attention. He's like, in a sense, do you treat the father um, any less than an unrighteous judge who's willing to um, give a widow what she wants just because she's nagging him? You can nag God. You can nag God. I remember one of my children was, um, we were we having um, certain things we were praying about and uh, for months. And uh, my wife turned to one of them, was asked, do you, do you want to pray about this issue? And, and that child says, I don't want to nag God <laughs> anymore. And uh, it was interesting because that prayer was answered that day, in a sense. And she, she had to explain, and that um, concerned another sibling. You know, and it's just amazing how we got to see this principle almost played out in our eyes. And, and you know, oftentimes in our prayer life, we don't, we don't get to see the answer right away. You know? But God always answers us, and he will answer in his due timing. And so we are to pray continuously, persistently, always. And, you know, the reason why Jesus gives this command, the reason why Paul gives this command, is he, they, they both expect that we are already praying. But they want us to truly pray. And why? Because we're needy. We're, we're needy people. We're, we're desperate. We're, we are creation. We're not the creator. We're not the, our captain of our own ship. We're not, we, we don't determine our own destiny. We do make decisions. We do make plans. But we, we make our plans. We make our decisions. We live our lives under the sovereignty of God. I would like you to see a, a, another parable which Jesus uses considering prayer in Luke 11. Turn there, Luke 11. And he says this, and it's interesting, right on the tail end of uh, Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. Right on the tail end of, of his instructions concerning prayer, the, the Lord's prayer, or it should rather be the disciples' prayer. And it's not a prayer that, that we um, should just mindlessly recite. Though you can, it is scripture, you can pray it that way. Um, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. You can pray those exact words, but what Jesus is getting at is those categories in which we are to pray, to glorify God, to um, uh, pray for his kingdom to come on earth, to um, request our uh, daily sustenance, to ask for forgiveness, and to ask for guidance. And, and then he gives this parable, Luke chapter 11, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, 
He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's telling them to persist, to nag God. And he uses, once again, this, this illustration of the friend and nagging another friend in the middle of the night. In those days, they, you know, they, they didn't have, yes, they had fireplaces, but you know, oftentimes they wouldn't keep a fire going all night. They, they'd huddle together for the warmth. And there's, there's probably other parenting reasons why they slept together, but it, it's just, you know, whether you, you've slept with your children or your whole family or not, or just you, you know what it's like to get a phone call in the middle of the night or you hear a noise in the middle of the night or something gets woken up in the middle of the night or the last um, time in, in, that you would want to be woken up and, and you just don't want to get, get up or move or do anything. Yet sometimes there's emergencies, or, but this isn't an emergency. It's something trivial. But the guy's knocking and he won't stop. He's... Give me some bread. Come on. Bread? But he does it. Because he doesn't want to hear the knocking anymore. And as Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? God's not like us. We are made in his image, but he's, he's not like us. He's good. He's faithful. He's just. And, and if he delays in answering our prayers, there's a good reason for that. But he answers every prayer. And he answers it in the perfect timing. And we are to plead with him. We are to seek him. We, I mean, it's just a privilege. Why? Because we're needy. We're desperate. So we're to pray continuously and persistently. And we're to do so understanding that God is present. He's everywhere. He knows us. He knows our frames. He knows our deeds. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our sins. He knows all our needs. And yet, at the same time, we're to plead with him. We're to understand our own needs. Another illustration of this is, is Jacob wrestling with God. In Genesis, uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. Before he comes into, back into the land after serving his father-in-law, he's worried about meeting Esau, and he, he meets the angel of the Lord, and he wrestles with him night and day, and says, I, I will not let you go until you bless me. This is what we are to do with God. This is how we are to live. We are to pray fervently and faithfully by praying continuously and persistently. And second... By praying with alertness. By praying with alertness. We pray fervently and faithfully. Um, 
by praying continuously and persistently, but also by praying with alertness, understanding what is going on all around us, understanding our needs, understanding our temptations, understanding the evils of this age. Why? Because we're in a war. This is, in a sense, the warfare language. We're to be watchful, on the alert. This is, in a sense, picturing a, a, a sentry, a guard, someone who's looking for danger and evil lurking around the corners. And oftentimes, you know, we, we can read those passages of spiritual warfare and, and we can gloss over them. But Jesus gives this same command in, in the Garden of Gethsemane to watch with me because of the evil of this world. And, and from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, there's war. There's war. There's spiritual war. There, you, you live on a spiritual battlefield. And, and the spiritual war is so deceptive that we oftentimes don't realize it because it's spiritual in nature. It's not physical. It's not earthly. Though sometimes it does take those forms. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul gives this instruction to the Corinthians. He says, For the, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Without getting in, we could spend sermons, uh, several series on spiritual warfare, but um, just briefly, and spiritual warfare is it's really about worship. It's about worship. All of creation, God, the reason why God created anything was for his glory, to glorify himself. Um, and you can read uh, Jonathan Edwards has this long treatise on the end for which God created the world. It's all about his glory. We are created as worshipers to worship him, but because of the fall, we don't worship God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed. And the main agent that has um, done this is Satan. And has tempted Eve, has tempted the whole world that is, as the Bible says, the ruler of the, this world who is behind every false religion and, in a sense, behind every national government as working behind the scenes to subvert the, the worship of God, to destroy um, the image of God, to defame the Im image of God in people. And so we are to wage this war, but we don't wage it like other wars. We wage it primarily through prayer and the proclamation of the gospel, of Scripture, of being obedient, but being obedient to God, but primarily through prayer. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, All of our warfare and all of our anxiety must take place in the con context of constant, unceasing prayer. Just as a soldier on the battle line has to keep in constant communication with his general headquarters and his commanding officer, so the Christian who is on the battle line must be in constant communication with his Lord. He might be fully equipped with all the armor, but if he is cut off from personal communication with his own commander, then he will be isolated and vulnerable. 
R.C. Sproul, he uses this warfare language to talk about praying without ceasing, constant prayer, communicating with our um, master, our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, you know, you might be fully equipped with all the armor, speaking about, you know, alluding to that spiritual armor, the, the um, armor of God in Ephesians 6. And it's interesting, like in, in Ephesians 6, when we read that, talking about the armor of God and, and Yes, that is figurative. Um, Paul uses those different um, aspects of armor of a, a Roman soldier to, um, to explain to us the, these uh, qualities which we are to put on to survive this spiritual warfare. And then at the end of that passage, he says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. And that's essentially the parallel passage to our passage this morning in Colossians chapter 4. It's interesting, at the end he, uh, of that that. Um, description of the spiritual armor the full armor of God he says to pray at all times and one of my professors um, would always use this illustration that prayer is in a sense um, weaving the armor together it's as in a sense the cords that hold it tight that that um, unite it all that keep it on that make it useful it um, energizes it or empowers it pray at all times because we're in a war. We're, we're to pray with alertness because we're, um, we live on a spiritual battlefield. Also because we have enemies. We have enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil are three enemies. This world system, our fallen flesh, which still tempts us to sin, still distracts us, and, and then the devil who is behind all that. And uh, too often, you know, we... We, um, as many preachers have said, we, we, we give the, the devil a bad rap sometimes because we blame him for everything. When, um, yes, he, he, he deserves a lot of blame. And he is not good in any sense. He is a father of lies. But the truth of the matter is we are our own worst enemies. And we, we, um, we're, we're self-deceived. We're prideful. We're arrogant. We're... we're um, we're blind to our own sin, which is probably the most horrible and frightening aspect of sin is it has a blinding effect. We don't realize it until after the fact, sometimes years later, when we look back and see how deceived we are. We have enemies, and then we have the world system to tempt us, to deceive us, to distract us. Which is why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he says, 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Say, so be sober-minded. Think soberly, clearly about yourselves, about the, this world in which you live, about your actions, about the places you go. Be watchful. Be alert. And pray. Pray. Because you're needy. Because you live on a battlefield. Because almost everything is against you. Even yourself. <laughs> you're against yourself. 
<laughs> you know, um, there's a there's a, a, a meme. I, I sometimes I see memes on, online on social media that is a, kind of like a comic book, a comic cartoon, and um, there's one that that has uh, been floating around for a while. Um, if any of you are familiar with the Scooby-Doo cartoons and how the Scooby-Doo character, they, they always eventually find the, the monster or whatever and they, they unmask the monster and they're like, uh, okay, it's time to find out who the real culprit is. And they unmask the guy and there's this meme that's been floating around the different Christian um, websites and social media accounts and uh, it reads, uh, okay, time to find out who is really... Um, uh, hindering my spiritual growth, <laughs> and they unmask it, and it's him. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like looking in the mirror. That's yeah, yeah. It's my fault. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're deceived. So we need to pray. We need to pray always. We need to pray with alertness, with watchfulness, because we're weak. We're needy. We're proud. We're prone to distraction. We're prone to temptation and sin. This is why, why um, you know, Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we remember that account, that scene. And, you know, the disciples, they're probably, in a sense, lulled into a false sense of security because they're alone with Jesus. You know, they're, they're not in the marketplace or, uh, you know, amongst Vanity Fair or um, those places or, or a tavern or, or any of those places, the red light district of a city or, you know, they're, they're not in a place where, you know, we, we can think of temptations always attacking us. They're alone. They're with Jesus. And they're tired. And he says, watch and pray. You would not fall into temptation. Pray for me. This is a serious event. This is a serious time. Watch and pray. It reminds me of um, you know when I joined the military. There's uh, in the military. There's what they call general orders. And you're supposed to memorize, and the drill instructors and the drill sergeants they help you to memorize those in various ways. Um, and <laughs> and uh, one such I just rem- remembered. Uh, I didn't memorize all of them, but one of them I I, I remember to this day, and I, I had to just look it up just to make sure. But general order number two: to walk my post in a military manner, observing everything that takes place within sight or hearing. Everything. We're to be, we're soldiers of the cross. We're to be alert. We're to observe everything that takes place within sight or hearing. Understanding that we're prone to temptation. We're prone to self-deception. We're prone to distraction. We're prone to fall. So we need to pray fervently and faithfully by praying with alertness. And third, by praying with thankfulness. Praying with thankfulness. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. One commentator writes, he says, Thanksgiving leavens prayer so that it does not become merely a selfish pleading to have one's desires fulfilled. It's, it's easy to pray for ourselves. You know, the bulk of our prayers are probably about us. And, and, and that's not wrong because we are needy. We need help. Um, 
but we're also to pray with thankfulness. And, and even as we pray for ourselves, we are to thank God that we can pray for ourselves, that, that we can approach the, the throne of grace in the time of need and, and find grace and find help. But we, we are to pray with thankfulness first by, uh, by thanking God for the opportunities to pray. That God gives you opportunities throughout life to, to pray to Him. And sometimes that, that may be that quiet moment. You know, if you're a, a, a young mother and you have plenty of kids and, you know, quiet moments are few. Sometimes you get those quiet moments. Or if you're, um, you know, you, you work all day long in a, a busy office and, and you get a quiet moment now and then to clear your mind and to pray. Or um, just to take a walk. I remember on my, my last deployment, and, and I was working uh, 14, 16, 18 hours a day, and, and I'd get uh, five, 10 minutes here to go use the restroom or go somewhere else, and I, I'd take advantage of those moments to pray because I needed to pray. Those were blessed times. We, we, we need to take advantage of those opportunities to pray that, that God gives us, but just in general, that he gives us opportunities to pray in general, that we can pray to God, we can pray to our creator. We, we have the, the privilege to pray, that, that you can pray to the creator of all the universe, everything that is, um, for everything. You have an open line. We think of that, you know, we could think of celebrities or, or CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or, or presidents or kings. And if we had an open line to them, we'd probably use it. Maybe not all of us, maybe some of them we probably wouldn't want to talk to, but that's a privilege to have an open line. We have an open line to the creator of the universe. James Roscup and his exposition on prayer in the Bible, which we've been going through during our prayer meetings, he says this. He says, Causes to voice gratitude are always timely to celebrate that God hears, that he has forgiven us all trespasses, that he sees believers in his beloved son, that he promises to answer, that he does not permit things to be as bad as they might be, that the future is as bright as the promises of God, that we have his word to guide our steps, and on and on and on. So many things we can be thankful for and and you know oftentimes if we get into that routine of thanking God for one thing that'll bring to mind other things and and it creates a domino effect of thanksgiving to God that's how we are to pray and as we even um, intercede for others or um, we have requests we we can thank God that thank you God that I can pray for my brother or my sister or for this person that I don't even know but I know that they have a request and I know that you answer or pray for um, some missionary um, around the world which I've never met I just know their name or um, for believers who are being persecuted in prison who in North Korea or China or Pakistan or wherever. I don't even know their names, but I know there's believers there who are suffering and I have the opportunity to pray for them, to hold them up, to intercede for them. We thank God for the partnership in prayer. And in a sense, as we are praying for other believers, we are praying for missions, for churches, we, um, in a sense partner with them in their endeavors. 
And even if it's not um, you know, like missions or full-time ministry, um, there is a sense that, that every believer is in full-time ministry as they work out their Christian life, wherever that is. And, and we can partner with the, the housewife or the mechanic who's struggling in a, a foul workplace. And uh, we can partner with them that they would endure, that they would be faithful, that they would be uh, salt and light in the midst of a dark place. We're to pray continuously and persistently, praying with alertness, praying with thankfulness. We're to pray fervently and faithfully. And concerning this concept and command to pray without ceasing, I, I, I like the, what, what John MacArthur said. He wrote this. He says, um, which is somewhat lengthy, but it's good. He said, to pray at all times is to live in continual God consciousness where everything we see and experience becomes a kind of prayer, lived in deep awareness of and surrendered to our Heavenly Father. To obey this exhortation means that when we are tempted, we hold the temptation before God and ask for His help. When we experience something good and beautiful, we immediately thank the Lord for it. When we see evil around us, we pray that God will make it right and be willing to be used of Him to that end. When we meet someone who does not know Christ, we pray for God to draw that person to himself and to use us to be a faithful witness. When we encounter trouble, we turn to God as our deliverer. In other words, our life becomes a continually ascending prayer, a perpetual communion, communing with our Heavenly Father. To pray at all times is to constantly set our minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, which Paul says in Colossians 3 and verses 1 and 2. As we pray continually, unceasingly, um, we are in a sense setting our minds on things above. So e even as we are praying about things on earth, we're, we're doing it from the perspective of things above as we ask God for help. So Paul urges and instructs the Colossians to first pray fervently and faithfully in this passage, and second, to pray for preachers. To pray for preachers. Verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We're to pray for preachers. And when, when I say pray for preachers, I mean this, and, and so does Paul. Because he says, pray also for us. He, he, he's talking about everyone who preaches the gospel. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his fellow apostles. He's talking about the fellow workers. Um, Epaphras, uh, uh, Aristarchus, um, On Onesimus, uh, Mark, um, even Demas. Um, all the people that at that time are faithful believers who are assisting in the, the, the spread of the gospel, who are declaring the gospel, everybody who is preaching the gospel, he says, pray also for us, that God may open, open to us a door for the word. He prays for preachers, and, and why? This hints back at, at what he wrote in, in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, he says this uh, concerning the gospel and the spread of the gospel. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We're to preach for those preachers, and that, in a sense, can include many of us. So we're not full-time preachers. When we proclaim the gospel, we're, in a sense, preaching the gospel to another unbeliever. We're calling them to repent and believe. We're explaining to them the gospel of God. We're explaining to them something about God in that particular context. We're spreading the gospel. We pray for one another as they um, spread the gospel, but we do primarily pray for those who are in full-time ministry, those um, preachers, those pastors, those missionaries, those who are committed towards the advancement of the gospel, but we pray for everyone who proclaims the gospel. But how are we exactly to pray for preachers? How, How are we to pray for those who proclaim the gospel? Paul alludes to this in in these verses. First, by praying for gospel opportunities. Praying for gospel opportunities. This is what he's getting at uh, when he says that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He's he's asking for gospel opportunities, for God to open the door, for, for God to bring opportunities before him and before all his friends and before all the apostles, before every believer who preaches the gospel. One commentator, he writes this, he says, Just as he prayed and gave thanks for them in the beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verse 3 and 9, so he expects them in turn to pray for him. In prison, he hopes for an open door, not necessarily release, but far more important, the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. He gives them this prayer request in prison, he says, on account of which I am in prison, because of the gospel. But he's not asking for release. He's just asking for open doors, which could mean release, definitely. But whether he's released or not, he's asking for open doors. And yes, there was Roman soldiers coming in and out. There was other unbelievers that were, whether they were Roman soldiers or not, they might have been administrators, servants coming in and out where he was housed. He had access to his friends. But he prays for opportunities for the gospel, for open doors. And he prays for us, asks for prayer for us. God would open the door that the gospel would go out. He uses the same... um, uh, uh, word picture in a couple other places. Um, the, the, probably the most notable one is, is to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16. He says this um, to the Corinthians because he, he writes from Ephesus that letter and towards the end in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 8 he says this. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. And note what he says. He says a wide door for effective work has opened to me. It's wide open. Like, I have to take advantage of this opportunity while I have it. But then he goes on and he says, and there are many adversaries. And so there's there's a couple things to note there that, you know, oftentimes we 
um, when we go to proclaim the gospel or we teach about God or we, we want to hand out tracts or spread the word or, or do some sort of evangelistic outreach, there is opposition. But just because there's opposition does not mean that there's not an open door. Paul says there's many adversaries, but he's still allowed to stay there and preach. And he's probably hinting at, at, at the fact that, um, and, and you can um, read this in Acts, where he, he in a sense, uh, is able to uh, teach in the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, many, many people have, um, have uh, alluded to that, meaning that, in a sense, Paul started a seminary. There in Ephesus, because he was there in Ephesus for a while, and, and he was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus throughout the day, not, not just on the Lord's Day, not just, he's not talking about the worship services, he's teaching throughout the week, training up men to go out and to spread the gospel. That's what he's, he's, he's talking to here in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, that there's a wide open door, and I need to take advantage of this. And he's praying the, the same thing here, or asking for prayer for the same thing here to the church at Colossae. And, and as, you know, even we, we read that, that verse in, in Ephesians 6, um, which, you know, it's the same time. You know, the, these uh, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians are called the prison epistles because he writes them about the same time. And in many ways, they're parallels. Um, but he's praying, he's asking for open doors while he's in prison. Opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And so this is how we are to pray for preachers. We are to pray for preachers by praying for gospel opportunities. For open doors. To, to um, not only evangelistically preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, call sinners to repent and believe, but also to train up others to go out. To, to, to um, teach the whole counsel of God. We, we pray for gospel opportunities by praying for open doors and, and also by praying for open hearts, for open hearts that people would receive the message and for open eyes, open eyes to, to see, to understand, to hear, to listen, and, and, and for not just their eyes to be open, but our own. Because sometimes if you've done any sort of evangelism, you can look back at instances where you missed it or you missed an evangelistic opportunity at work or out in the marketplace or with some friends or family members. You missed it. You only see it looking backwards say, oh, I should have said this. That was, a, that was an open door. Their, their eyes were open. It's just my eyes weren't open to the opportunity. The opportunity was right before me. So we pray for preachers by praying for gospel opportunities. And second, by praying for gospel proclamation. Praying for gospel proclamation because he says, he says uh, ask that God may open to us a door for the word. And then he goes on to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Preachers need help. It doesn't matter how long you've been preaching, how long you've, you've been a missionary, how long you've been an evangelist, how long you've been a street preacher, you still need help. You always need help. You need help for faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. 
that you be faithful to the word. You need help for, um, for focus on the proclamation. He, he talks about the mystery of Christ. All, all that encompasses Jesus Christ and who he is, the prophecies all the way throughout the Old Testament, everything that he did, that he would declare it in, in, in such a way that it would no longer be a mystery to people. We pray for, for preachers for uh, their focus, the focus of their proclamation, that, that they wouldn't get sidetracked into rabbit trails and, and um, bad analogies, bad illustrations. And, and then we, we, we pray for the boldness to proclaim it, that they would not be fearful, uh, because the fear of man is always a, a temptation. It's always a temptation to, to smooth out the rough edges of the gospel, to, to, um, you know, to capitulate just a little bit. And, and, and we, can, we can excuse that um, by saying, well, you know, I, I want to leave the door open for a further conversation. I don't want to ruin this relationship completely. We can excuse away. We need to pray for preachers for their gospel proclamation, for their faithfulness to proclaim it, for their focus on their proclamation, and for their boldness. That they would not be fearful. And this is, in a sense, why Paul says this, this brief little phrase, on account of which I am in prison. On account of which I am in prison. And, and certainly, Paul may have struggled with that temptation, you know, and maybe even other believers. Hey, hey, Paul, you know, you're in prison. You might want to just calm down a little bit, tone it down just a little bit until you get out. Just, you know, maybe they'll give you a shorter sentence. Maybe you'll get out sooner, just, you know, some good behavior. No, no. He's going to continue to proclaim the gospel to the prison guards, to the soldiers, to the servants, to the administrators, and he needs boldness to do so. He needs prayer to do so. Pray for preachers by praying for gospel opportunities, by praying for gospel proclamation, and third, by praying for gospel clarity. Gospel clarity. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That it may be clear. And it's interesting that, that the Apostle Paul, this brilliant mind, this, you know, who is... Who is uh, not only trained as a rabbi, but trained by the rabbis of rabbis. You know, um, art. He was intelligent, and yet he still needed prayer. He still asked for prayer so that he could make his teaching and his preaching clear. Because he, like every other preacher, is prone to stumble over his own words prone to make mistakes, prone to um, have bad analogies or bad illustrations, prone to um, be misunderstood. And so we can pray for gospel clarity first for preachers that their, their speech would be understandable. That their speech would be understandable. And this is something, um, you know, it, it's not exactly in the text here, um, though you can allude to this uh, to make it clear that, that you know, Paul was in, in a place, a, a, a time and place where there was um, just a melting pot of ethnicities. 
Yes, there was, in a sense, a, a, a one primary language of Greek, but there was also Latin. There was also all these other ethnic groups that were coming together in Rome around the Roman Greco world. And, and certainly there's, there's other languages. Certainly there's other accents. Certainly there's the possibility to, um, to stumble over words, to, to not be clear to somebody else, to somebody, for, for somebody else to... Um, just misinterpret you because of your accent. So we can pray for, for gospel clarity that, that preachers, that, that their speech would be understandable in their language and their tone, that they would use the right words, that their arguments and teaching would be understandable, that their speech would be faithful to the message. It, it, it's so important. It, it's, it's in, in a sense, also um, why James says, you know, let not many of you become teachers because of the tongue. And he, he says that in the context of sin and sinning with the tongue. But there's also a sense of just stumbling over your own words, of, of not being faithful to the message, of using bad analogies, bad illustrations, going down rabbit holes, rambling on and on about nothing. D you know, uh, uh, drifting from the text and the meaning so, you know, um, Charles Spurgeon, he, he's known for probably being one of the greatest um, preachers of the English language. E even his sermons, they, they say, like, just the word count, the variety of words that he used is so vast. He, 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 he understood the English language and, and could command it, and he was very eloquent. Yet even himself, um, there, there's a story which has been told several times of how he would have pe people come to visit the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And uh, one such time he had some, some uh, ministerial students, some young pastors come visit. And, and he, he said, come, let me um, show you around and, and I want to show you the boiler room. And so he takes them under the boiler room. You know, and, and at that time, many big buildings had boiler rooms to, to, to heat through steam. And so he takes them downstairs, and, and, and they say it was underneath the, the main worship center, the auditorium. And, and he takes them down there, and, and they're, they're thinking of seeing a big boiler. But what they see is hundreds of people praying, praying. So this is a secret to my success. The prayers of the people. They're praying before the service, during the service, after the service, all while um, Charles Spurgeon is upstairs preaching. So his preaching would be effective. So it would be faithful. So it would be clear. So it would be understandable. So that it would hit its mark. So that God would be glorified. He himself said he needed prayers. Preachers need prayers. I need your prayers. I desperately need your prayers. Charles Spurgeon, he's also said that prayer can never be in excess. It can never be in excess. You can't pray too much. <laughs> you can't pray too much. It's impossible. Prayer is, is so vital. So vital to ministry. So vital to the Christian life. So vital to everything we do. It reminds me of um, what the apostles said in the beginning of the church in Acts 
chapter 6 and the, the, the church is in its infancy and it's, it's growing and um, there's this problem that comes up about um, the widows um, receiving their distribution uh, of money, their support and other people being supported as the church is growing and there's always um, problems with, with church growth. Usually they're good problems, but there's problems nonetheless about um, how we do ministry and how we do it effective. And, and this is where we get the office of deacon. And the apostles, they, 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 they um, uh, in a sense, cast lots for some men who are full of wisdom that could take care of these practical matters of the church. And, and they give this reason. He said, it's not right for us to serve tables. Not because they're above that, because Jesus washed feet, but there's more important things and we need to divide up the tasks. And they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This is what ministry is all about. It's prayerful proclamation. Prayer and the scriptures. And I'm tempted in my day-to-day activities to drift from that, to um, uh, get sidetracked by administrative issues and, and, and calls and planning and, and, and all sorts of things which are helpful and they're beneficial, but they're not the, the best thing. They're not the most important thing. The most important thing, the best thing I can do is pray and preach the Word or study the Word, but it's prayer in the Word. That's it. That's ministry. Prayerful proclamation. And too often, the thing that gets cut is prayer. The thing that gets um, cut out is prayer. We need to be a people that pray. We need to pray often. We need to pray fervently and faithfully. We need to pray for preachers. We need to pray. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Call to Prayer, he writes this. He writes this. Prayer is that point in religion at which... You must be most of all on your guard. Here it is that true religion begins. Here it flourishes and here it decays. Tell me what a man's prayers are and I will soon tell you the state of his soul. Prayer is a spiritual pulse. By this the spiritual health may be tested. Prayer is a spiritual weather glass. By this we may know whether it is fair or foul with our hearts. Oh, let us keep an eye continually upon our private devotions. Here is the pith and marrow of our practical Christianity. Sermons and books and tracts and committee meetings and the company of good men are all good in their way. But they will never make up for the neglect of private prayer. Mark well the places and society and companions that unhinge your hearts for communion with God and make your prayers drive heavily. There be on your guard. Observe narrowly what friends and what employments leave your soul in the most spiritual frame and most ready to speak with God. To these cleave and stick fast. If you will take care of your prayers, nothing shall go very wrong with your soul. It's been often said that you can, um, in a sense, evaluate a person's spirituality and even whether or not they are truly saved by their prayer life. People say, what a man is on his knees is what he really is before God. That's the truth. That's the true state of your spirituality, is your prayer life. 
And that's also a test for whether or not someone's truly converted. I often ask, what do you pray? What is your prayer life like? Because a believer must pray. A believer has to pray. A, a believer naturally prays. They may stumble. They, not, they may not pray as they ought to, and, and none of us does. But a true believer will pray. They will want to pray. They'll pray for others. They'll pray for the gospel. They'll pray for um, understanding of the scriptures. And this is something we have to continually evaluate ourselves on, is our prayer life. Do we, do we find prayer important? And, and not just as, as a duty, though sometimes it is a duty, as, as the, many of the Puritans would say, pray until you pray. Because oftentimes we don't feel like praying. And the answer is not to pray. The answer is to pray until you are actually praying. To just do it and then um, you'll, in a sense, prime the pump of your communication with God. You must pray. And if you don't pray, I'd ask yourselves, why, why not? If, if your prayer life is, is sparse, and if it's non-existent, then I would be scared. If you don't pray, you should be concerned about your own soul. So there's many people who are wrapped up in false religions who pray. Their prayers are not heard because they have not repented and believed upon Jesus Christ. They have not um, come to God in the way in which he commands them to repent and believe, to, to um, be forgiven. And if you don't pray, that's the command to you. Repent, believe, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Look to him. He's your only hope. And that's why we pray, because he is our only hope. Not just for salvation, but for sanctification, for effectiveness in ministry, for a faithful life. That's why we pray. Because we need help. Help us, Lord. Help us to understand our need. Help us to understand how weak and needy we are. Help us to understand that we are not our own creator. We are not our own determiner of um, life and, and our plans and our goals and our aspirations. But that you are sovereign. That you reign. And that through you, through Jesus Christ, is the only answer to, um, to our brokenness to our sinfulness, to our need for salvation. Lord, help us. Help us to understand who we are and who you are. Help us to pray. Please guide us this week. Guide us in our walk. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.